Ken Campbell. The Seekers Podcast. Walk about, snell, spit, day, long, day, long, last one, half one, long, everyone, something, corrupted, finish yet, time. Greetings, Seekers, and uh, hilarious. Welcome to Ken Campbell, the Seekers podcast, hosted by me, Daisy Campbell, Ken's daughter, and David Bramwell. Ken Campbell was one of a kind. An unconventional performer, wordsmith, theatre director, comedian, trickster and creative powerhouse. For this unique series, we'll be plundering Ken's archive to bring you the best recordings of his one-man shows, as well as other selected treats. So this episode, Daisy, is the entirety of a show that he, I don't think he did very many times, called no. Hail Eris. I think he only performed it three times, uh, this one, and I never saw it live. So I was amazed to come across the cassette recordings of this um, and listen to it. It's the whole telling of the, you know, offstage saga of of putting on Illuminatus, the eight-hour epic based on uh, Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea's novel of the same name. And um, and it's fascinating to hear about, you know, that Bill Nye was in it and Jim Broadbent and all sorts of characters. And uh, and, you, and you, you were conceived during the play, is that right? Yes, I, I, that's the way I tell it. Yeah, I was conceived <laughs> backstage. Um, well, my mum, my mum was playing Eris, goddess of chaos and confusion, and that is now my middle name. Um, and she is, of course, the uh, the goddess uh, of the Discordians, uh, the the religion that worships chaos. So here it is, Hail Eris. The first time I went to a science fiction convention. Quite why I went along is um, curious. I'll tell you what I find myself sometimes saying. It was to do with that little club that we founded, a club of people who every week would do one thing that they never do. Yeah? Maybe it was that. Maybe I, you know, I, I used to like science fiction when I was at school, but I've been very lazy about it. I came across now, this fact that there are science fiction conventions. This is when? When are we? 1971, maybe two, something like that. And I, uh, my girlfriend was Mavis. She was uh, an artist. I said, to her, well, this is this week's one. It's at Eastside. It was at the uh, Station Hotel, Newcastle on Time. Well, we, uh, right there was the um, Thursday before the Good Friday in the evening. And uh, we sat at a little table in the, in the bar. And then the fans, the science fiction fans, started to arrive. Some of them very curious of shape, you know, and, you know, funny beers, and stuff like that. very funny of shape, you know, and I'm talking like this, but I'm talking like that, and I'm like, wow. I mean, we didn't have a lot to do with each other, and they didn't see that we could interrupt them too much left and too, but then, when I went to the bar, to get us a drink, there was a man there with a wonderful plummy voice, and he was talking to a couple of fans, and he was saying, I think I'd rather ring the changes in my latest one. He said, we're in hyperspace and the airlock doors are frozen. Wow, I got the drinks. I went back and noticed I said, wow, you know, we really are somewhere this weekend. Anyway, we went to the very, the very first function of all, really, proper function, which was uh, 10 o'clock in the, in the massive ballroom. There we are, hundreds, hundreds of fans assembled and a guy, his name was Boomer. Um, he was the um, MC, a science fiction writer himself, and he was telling us what, um, what illustrious writers will win us this weekend, fans. 
Hey, hey, going like this. Hey, it's a, it's a, uh, this event was called He's in the Bar. That's what it said in the programme. He's in the bar, in the ballroom. Yeah, go for it, uh, He said, now, nah, for example, we've got Harry Harrison here. Harry Harrison, author of the Stainless Steel Rat Books. Is it Harry? Is, uh, anyone here doesn't know your shining face? Is it Harry? Then the cry goes up from the fans. He's in the bar. Oh, he's in the bar again. We've got Brian Aldis. Brian Aldis is here. <laughs> and, uh, Brian and, um, He's in the bar. Wow. That was a stirring I got, see, because you see, he's in the bar. God, this, that's what I wanted. That's all I wanted in my life, that I would do something so worthwhile that my name would be read out. Ken Campbell. He's in the bar. All around the hotel were these posters about John Brunner. John Brunner, this author. You know, they were so everywhere. I wasn't sure actually whether I'd heard of him. Maybe I'd heard of him a lot or what? Not. I don't know. I can't think. John Brunner, John Brunner, everywhere. It suddenly came into my head. I know who John Brunner is. He's that airlock door man. The man with the frozen airlock doors. Anyway, it was uh, about 12 o'clock maybe, um, you, know, to, you know, 12 a.m. And um, I was in the toilets there. I was uh, a whole load of. Uh, WC pedestals. I, 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 I went in there, no one else in there. Turn up the key. In came airlock doors. <laughs> he passed me, he went to the very far end. He went down there. And then in came a fan. Eh? A fan passed me, went straight down to the end. <laughs> and said, Tell me, Mr. Brunner. Yeah, that's right. He said, Tell me, Mr. Brunner, uh, which is your best book? And uh, John Brunner. I think I shall never write anything finer than stand on Zanzibar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we went straight up to the book room where the dealers were. I got my copy of Stand on Zanzibar. Big wild fat book all about uh, uh, population. And I want to move on to uh, late that night. Now they're wonderful these science fiction conventions because uh, uh, the SF fans drink in a way only paralleled by country and western fans. <laughs> <laughs> I was into the night now with a great Brian Aldis. Wow, he, I mean, if you know him, he, he is like a great Breton, in my opinion. Uh, ripping with intelligence and enthusiasm at the same time. And a sort of humility about him. Anyway, he was telling me about everything. And uh, at one point, I, uh, I'm hearing him say this. Uh, but uh, my researches show, says Brian, that the bifurcation of the British literature took place in 1939. And then he was on, and like that, and then he was on, 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 Come back a moment. I don't, I don't understand what that, that was that you said just earlier about the bifurcation of the British literature take, taking place in 1939. Well, it's very easy to understand. He said, um, if you take H.G. Wells, for example, writing in the 20s and 30s, one week he's writing Tono Bungay, uh, social realism, if you like. Then the next week he's writing The War of the Worlds, and he's uh, writing The Shape of Things to Come, and then he's doing The History of the World, and whatever he writes. The public and the critics say, write on, Wells, write on, this is terrific stuff. 
Here's the money, fucker, you like this, it's grand. But after 39, the literatures are bifurcated. So that if in your writings you imagine, or if actually you just know how an aeroplane works, seekers, you're gonna be not sold in the regular places of a bookshop. You're gonna be in a cordoned off section, and then you'll be lucky. Most likely you'll be in lurid covers on a railway station. If you're criticised, uh, it'll be on the wrong pages of a Sunday newspaper, and briefly, wow, I was thinking, yes, and has not theatre followed on what uh, um, oldest would refer to as the so-called serious novel, like D.H. Lawrence and whatnot, for sure. Theatre had had his little um, experiments with the absurd, you know, Ionesco, Beckett, and early Pinter. But it had nothing to do with stand on Zanzibar, man! <laughs> Brunner and all these boys, what these were at. Let me tell you something about the science fiction authors. What differentiates science fiction author from a British playwright? I'll tell you. When a British playwright gets pissed, he gets more and more miserable and finally has to be shoveled and put in a bucket and into a taxi and sent home. Science fiction authors add to whatever they're saying. The pisser they get, the more wonderful they get. And listen, you can't be a science fiction author unless you know a hundred ways to finish off the planet. What does Edward Bond know? Fine, if that be generous. Wow, I was getting the calling now, Seekers, right? The job was this, to found a science fiction theatre. I said, maybe we've got to get going on this. The idea was this, it would be called the Science Fiction Theatre of London and run from Munich. <laughs> as soon as the convention was at an end, Mavis and I were in the VW camper. It can take a long time to get to Munich if you go slow. Can we do it that way? Talking about this, that, and that, many adventures. In Munich, right? We go and see everyone. The little theatres, the big theatres, like that, right? Talking to people. Everyone thinks it's stupid. <laughs> and maybe uh, that's where the um, whole vapour would have died. If it wasn't for Peter O'Halligan. Peter O'Hagan uh, lived in Liverpool and he was a proud Liverpudlian. He was also known as Pete the Papers. It was in the, uh, the days when the Beatles were flourishing in Liverpool. Pete uh, O'Hagan used to sell trade music newspapers outside the Beatle offices there, just round the corner from the cavern. He was also a poet, and being a poet, he kept a dream diary. At some point then, he's in the Liverpool University bookshop. He's called over to a book, an overpriced Dover paperback called Memories, Dreams and Reflections by Carl Gustav Jung. He knows that he paid so much for it, no wonder he was really reading it, right? And he's really reading it, he's learning it as he goes. You know, he gets to a point and he can't remember what that refers to. He's going back, you know, looking it up. He's taking weeks over the reading of this, going from bar to bar, reading this book. Now, there's a, there's a slight amount of um, suspense in that work. The great man tells us that, not yet, but at some point, maybe not soon, maybe later, he's not sure yet as he writes it, but at one point he will be telling us, he promises this, he will be telling us 
of the great dream he had, the one that changed him completely, which stopped him sculpting. He was never to sculpt again. He was never to paint any more of his mandalas after this dream. It was then that he was going to go on the mighty journey into mankind's subconscious. But he's not going to tell you about it yet. That's the suspense in it, see? And um, when uh, Peter arrived, actually, at the dream, on page 223, he fell off his bar stool. <laughs> Here it is. This is the dream I mentioned earlier. I found myself in a dirty, sooty city. It was night and winter and dark and rainy. I was in Liverpool. A broad square dimly illuminated by streetlights into which many streets converge. In the centre was a round pool, and in the middle of it a small island. On the island stood a single tree, a magnolia in a shower of reddish blossoms. This dream represented my situation at the time. I can still see the greyish-yellow raincoats glistening with the wetness of the rain. Everything was extremely unpleasant, black and opaque just as I felt then. But I had had a vision of unearthly beauty, and that was why I was able to live at all. Liverpool is the pool of life. The liver, according to an old view, is the seat of life, that which makes to live. This dream brought with it a sense of finality. I saw that here the goal had been revealed. One could not go beyond the centre. Peter O'Hagan knew now that uh, his life had changed. He began scouring Liverpool for the site of Jung's dream. And he decided to look into whether Jung had actually ever been to Liverpool in his lifetime. He found that he had not. But uh, during his researches, he did uncover this fact that Hitler had been to Liverpool. Hitler, when he was 17, was in Liverpool, visiting his auntie, I believe, in the Crosby area. <laughs> he, uh, Peter was now um, knocking on the door of many uh, <clears throat> dream specialists, people from the university, people studying dream time and sleep time, and he found from them that really none of them knew what a dream is. He said, uh, well, is it possible then that a man might have a dream of something which is not to come to pass till after his death? They said, yeah, for sure, we have uh, many records of this here, Peter, you know, like that. Hmm. And it was shortly after that that Peter declared the site of Jung's dream to be the conjunction of warehouse roads that come in, uh, the main one being Matthew Street, the street on which the cavern was, and i.e. he'd come round in the full circle to back where he was. And he took a leasehold on a derelict warehouse property, right, on the corner there of the conjunction of the roads, yeah? Uh, Jung's dream, see? Where then uh, was the fountain on the uh, 
the little pool in the island. Well, that he held to be that manhole cover, yeah? And that manhole, because sometimes in times of flood, the underground river pool would burst up through there. That's where, that's where that was. Anyway, so he, he, he took his lease, leasehold on that. It only cost him about a pound a year. Uh, but he fell foul of the rates. And he'd really got no money. He was called in uh, for the rates once and then twice. And on the third time, he appeared in court in a suit of arrows, very proudly. And he'd uh, nicked uh, the granite ball off some manorial home. And he was manacled to that, and he put it on the dock. And he got nine months for <laughs> contempt of court. <laughs> this uh, deeply upset a lot of Liverpudlians. Um, number one, maybe, of which was Beryl Williams. Beryl Williams was the Chinese wife of Alan Williams, the legendary geezer, who, the first manager of the Beatles, the man who gave the Beatles away. Beryl Williams, very, very canny lady and a great admirer of Peter. And she moved in to the Jungian establishment. And what she did while he was in Walton Jail was she organized the, uh, the downstairs part of the warehouse into like a hippie market, you know, a bit like Dingwalls and that, making sure that everyone was paying regular money for their stalls there so that when Peter uh, came out of the of Walton Jail. He had a little bit of a business going there. Anyway, as soon as he was out, he named the place properly. It was now called the Liverpool School of Language, Music, Dream and Pun. In a wagon, they went over to Zurich. They found the next bit of rock that Jung would have used to sculpt on it. He hadn't had the great dream and they got it hacked out. And they brought it back to Liverpool and it was carved then into the bust of Jung and inset into the warehouse wall, together with a thing done by a monumental mason underneath it, which said, Liverpool is the, is the pool of life, C.G. Jung, 1927. You know, and the bust looking into the manhole cutter, where the pool might rise. I remember actually, uh, uh, there was the Jung Belie he held, and uh, the, um, half the Liverpool monarch was assembled in the street there. There was about a thousand people. It was a Sunday afternoon. And, um, and actually, the, the bust of Jung was covered with a curtain. And, and the thing, and Jung's grandson, or something, some young lad, came and gave a speech in German, thanking the liberal school of language, music, dream, and pond, wondering his grandfather in this fashion, and then pulled the thing, and there was the bust looking down over the manhole cover, and the Liverpool Philharmonics struck up with, they tried to tell us we're too young. <laughs> and then, um, Ken. Ken from the local wine bar. Uh, what are we meant to do, us uh, here at the Young Belize? Well, what I probably ought to do is to sell wine. And so he went over and they brought out crates of wine. He used to buy a bottle of wine with a glass for an all-inclusive price. Anyway, we got pissed and merry, and there were lots of groups came on to play. And at uh, half past six from the Liverpool School of Language, Music, Dream and Pun, they threw out jam sandwiches to the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little bit after that, um, Peter O'Halligan rang me up. He said, What happened to your vision of the science fiction theatre? I said, I don't, I don't know. Wonderful. He said, Don't you think the Liverpool School is the premises for it? 
I said, yeah, I think you're right. Anyway, I was in, uh, I was in London, so I, I, I have a stock hill. I went down to have a stock hill to Compendium Bookshop. I was trying to remember, you know, all the tips I got from John Brown and all this and like that, what the great books were. I mean, one thing I was sure of, we didn't want an original work. No, no, we were going to adapt from the lurid covers. Without a doubt, that's what we were going for. Anyway, I got to a big pile. I came to the, uh, to the till, and sitting there by the till was this book just, uh, you know, moments imported from the States. And it was called Illuminatus. I was very attracted by the cover. There's a little pop group there. For Christ's sake, there's a yellow submarine here. <laughs> yeah, it's now going to be obviously be called the uh, Science Fiction Theatre of Liverpool. Anyway, this was the book I read. I put the, uh, the pile where I was reading in. And it was when I... Listen, they make great play in this of the number 23. And listen, number 223. Page 223, that's the page of the, the dream. This is 23. What do I say about it? Why is it so important? Because 2 plus 3 equals 5. The pentad within which the devil can be invoked, as for example in a pentacle, or the Pentagon building in Washington. 2 divided by 3 equals 0.666, the number of the beast. Uh, the dates of the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald, November the 22nd and 24th, have a conspicuous 23 absent in between them. <laughs> All the great anarchists die on the 23rd day of some month or other. Sakai and Benzetti on August the 23rd. Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow May the 23rd. Duck Schultz on October the 23rd. And Vince Cole was 23 years old when he was shot on 23rd Street. And even though John Dillinger died on the 22nd of July, if you look it up like I did in Tone's book, Dillinger Days, you'll find he couldn't get away from the 23 principle because... 23 other people died that night in uh, Chicago. Uh, and onwards and onwards. Wow, I mean, I was only that far through the book and I gave Peter a ring. I said, man, I've found the work. It's called Illuminatus. He said, I've just found out something. He said, you remember? It was a magnolia tree with reddish blossoms. The only magnolia with reddish blossoms is the magnolia campellis. Wow, man. That's not everything with us. Right, when it mounted on, we got more books here, you know, volume one, volume two, volume two, three. Um, I've now, I've now met a wonderful guy, Chris Langham, a dream, dream of, a, an, uh, of, a, of a comic actor, in my opinion. I said to Chris, I said, listen, read these and tell me if you don't agree that he who mounts these on a stage will be putting on the most remarkable play yet done on the planet. He said, sure, he'd read them, I don't know. Maybe it was two, three months later. He said to me, do you remember those books you gave me? And you said something about, you know, if you put it on, you'd be putting on the most remarkable play yet done on the world. I said, yeah. He said, I agree. I said, really, right? We'd better get ahead then. He said, yeah, I think we should. Um, so we, we ran up, PJ Halligan, said, right, you know, we're, we're ready to go now. You know, it's part of it. A fellow called Chris Langham and I. And we gave us... We need a big date, you know, date would be November 23rd, 1976. Really, why were we adapting these things? The thing was, they're very, so peculiar, do you know what I mean? It's like once you get into them, you really eat them. I mean, what we decided to do was that we would adapt every moment of all these books that was possible to be adapted into drama and then choose from this thing. There's really, we owed it to the, these extraordinary authors. I mean, uh, some of you may not know too much about these. Uh, um, it begins in uh, confrontation. A bomb goes off in, confront in, in, the, in the offices of Confrontation magazine, a left-wing libertarian magazine. Uh, two New York cops 
Saul Goodman and Barney Muldoon come across strange memorandum in the rubble. Yeah, this is one of the first ones. And it's um, from a letter that appeared in Playboy in April 69. I recently heard an old man of right-wing views, a friend of my grandparents, assert that the current wave of assassinations in America is the work of a secret society called the Illuminati. He said that the Illuminati have existed throughout history. Only international banking cartels have all been 32nd degree masons were known to Ian Fleming, who portrayed them as Spectre in his James Bond books, for which the Illuminati did away with Mr. Fleming. First of all, this seemed like a paranoid delusion to me. Then I read in the New Yorker that Alan Chapman, one of Jim Garrison's investigators in the New Orleans probe, that John Kennedy assassinations, believes that the, the Illuminati really exist. Washington and Jefferson, oh yeah. This is um, from some left-wing newspaper in Chicago, it's called the Rogers Park, yeah? Uh, as far as we could be, uh, Chris and I used to find, we used to look up all these things, they're all deadly accurate. Uh, no historian knows what happened to Adam Weishaupt after he was exiled from Bavaria in 1785. See, Adam Weishaupt, I mean, by this time of the book, you know something, that uh, Adam Weishaupt revived or invented the Illuminati, a secret society within masonry, in uh, Ingolstadt, Bavaria, 1776. Oh, that's who that guy is. Now, after he was exiled from Bavaria, 1785, entries in Washington's diary after that date refer to hemp crop at Mount Vernon. The possibility that Adam Weishaupt killed George Washington and took his place, serving as our first president for two terms, is now confirmed. <laughs> the, other major, the other major party in those days, the uh, Democratic Republicans, was formed by Thomas Jefferson. And there are grounds for accepting the testimony of the Reverend Jedediah Morse of Charleston, who accused Jefferson of being an Illuminati agent. Thus, even at the dawn of our government, both parties were Illuminati fronts. Hey, listen to this. The, uh, with, uh, this is now about Nesta Webster and her book, World Revolution, yeah? Evidently uh, published by Constable and Company, London, 1921. Mrs. Webster, etc., says that the Illuminati never intended to create their utopian anarcho-communist society. That was just another of their masks. Their real purpose was dictatorship over the world. I said to Chris, I'm going to find this uh, world revolution now. And I couldn't find it. Anywhere. Anyway, I'm hunting out this Nesta Webster. Nesta Webster. Suddenly, I'd actually come across a lead. Evidently, there is somebody publishing World Revolution by Nesta Webster in uh, the village of Chorley, Chumley, Devon. Anyway, my old man had, uh, uh, um, had moved to Devon, and when I was staying there, I gave him a ring. And the voice said, yes. Britons Publishing Company. Um, I said, um, I understand that uh, you have copies of World Revolution by Nesta Webster. He said, who is that? <laughs> I, I said, look, I, I, I said, you, you won't know me. I said, I'm, I'm a, a theatre director, and then Ken Campbell. I just, uh, I'm, I'm very interested to get hold of that, but I wonder if it's possible to come over and just buy it off you. He agreed. Anyway, I, I, I went there. You know, coming into the uh, village, it was like a sort of overgrown place, you know, spooky, parked car, Went in, 
Thank you. Thank you. Quite an old, very gaunt, tall gentleman. He asked me a few questions in the hall. Seemed I was all right. Went with him out of the house, down to the bottom of the garden, and in his shed had this printing press. And he sold me a copy of World Revolution and other things, and Secret Societies by Arkham Dalal. That was there. Also, he was publishing the protocols of the Elders of Zion. Really <laughs> <laughs> I've got really quite, quite a powerful array of books. And um, he, uh, he made a cup of coffee and we had, uh, had a little chat together in the lounge there. And he said, what is your interest in the conspiracy? I said, well, I don't even know about this, but there's um, a couple of Americans have published these uh, paperback books, Illuminatus, and I'm thinking of... Uh, dramatising them into a theatre piece. Mm. He told me now a bit about himself. His father, apparently, had been consummately evil. He was a high-ranking mason, and his boy had rebelled against the father in this fashion. He'd taken on the Roman Catholic faith, and then devoted himself to unmasking the conspiracy. And he said... I'd like to give you this word of warning. And bearing in mind my religion, you will forgive my terminology. I trace it back to the devil. Wow. <laughs> I knew that outside in my car was volume two of Illuminatus, the blurb on the back of which reads, was it Lucifer Saul Goodman was after? He was beginning to almost believe it was. Wow. With some sort of energy. I returned back to London in Bourne, Chris Langham, how things were going. Wow. We redoubled our efforts. Let me tell you what my life was like. 96 Haverstock Hill is next door to the Load of Hay pub. What I used to do, I used to type hard, you know, like, like through the stuff, you know, like, like scenes sort of mounting scenes, whatever it was going to be, however, however it was, but it... You couldn't stop it. Your head was full of the most remarkable information. And I used to uh, love going into the load of hay and turning people onto it. Listen, there wasn't hardly anyone in the load of hay who didn't know that uh, on, a, on an American $1 bill, that wasn't George Washington, that was Adam Weishaupt. This is, they could all find the hidden marijuana on there. They knew the significance of the eye of the pyramid. Fuck me, that's the, that's the actual sign of the Illuminati, the eye in the pyramid. What is it? Volume, volume, volume one, where is it? Yeah, it's actually called the eye in the pyramid. That's the bloody thing that's on the great seal of America. They all knew that. Uh, then I used to also delight in going for the uh, left-wingers in there, right? <laughs> and informing them of how uh, Karl Marx was a, an Illuminati dupe. <laughs> I'd uh, also bought from Britain's publishing company, Mr. Webster. Now, maybe you don't read him, but I'll tell you who used to read her, right? I'll tell you who used to read her. Winston Churchill, he thought she was a terrific author. Winston Churchill thought there was nothing better than to relax with Nestor Webster's chart of world conspiracy on how it works. <laughs> then he hadn't got much time at his disposal. He used to uh, look at the back bit, which is more simply laid out, right? And we've got there our French, uh, French Revolution. You know, you'd hit 
the Illuminati, I can't see what it is, the Illuminati, somewhere here, right? And down here we've got Karl Marx, right? Down there. This is how, this is the meaning of him being an Illuminati dupe, you see? Adam Weishaupt and the original Illuminati boys, what they were doing is they were studying civilizations, all civilizations, and how they work. Because if you can predict the twist and turn of a civilization by your studies, then you've got the power over it, right? And uh, they, uh, in their studies led them to this opinion that all civilizations work to the law of five. Incidentally, two plus three equals five, remember? Okay, and the, um, the five points of the civilization are this. They all knew about this in the load of hay in them days, let me tell you. And the um, number one, Fivirum. The Fivirum period. In the Fivirum period, hardly anything written about that, if at all. The Fivirum period of a civilization, because everybody, it's a, that's a great age, everybody is equal to everybody else. Whether they're genius or idiot, they're equal. But then comes the... Zweitracht period, when a few folk know that actually they are superior to a load of the others, right? And it'd be a good idea if they, they, you know, they went around doing things that they were good at, and, and, and these other folk got rich or what, or got more stuff or more power or something. Got their rise in the Zweitracht period of priest class, all that, that kings, um, all, all, all this stuff coming out in the Zweitracht period. And then you get the third period coming, the unordinable period, where a load of people at the bottom are looking up, you see, because the Zweitrak people have passed it on, they haven't passed it on by merit, they've given it to, you know, a nephew, somebody did them a favour and things like that. We've now got, really, a bunch of idiots or some idiots up at the top, and that's when the unordinable upheaval comes about, and that's really where Marx finished off, you see. But he knew the rest, so why did he finish there? I'll tell you why, to put, give... Give it into the hands of the Illuminati, right? to hurry it up into their hands. Because according to the study, you are going to move willy-nilly, whatever way it goes, whatever way it goes, the unordinable period, it's going to crash into the Beanton Hairshark period. Beanton Hairshark period is the period where one is ruled by a medium of expression. That's the way to say it. I mean, the obvious way, the way to think about it, it's like 1984, you know? It's like rule by paper and corridors. Nobody finally responsible for anything. Rule, rule by a medium of expression. I mean, it's said that, it's meant to be the worst period of all, of all civilizations, is the Beampton Hairshaft period. And theoretically, according to Weishaupt, it can go on till the end of the medium of expression. I guess when he was writing, he meant paper. Therefore, the hideous Beanton hair shaft period could go on till the end of trees. Something's happened now. A whole lot of the world is being run by computer and a silicon chip. So perhaps it would be better said now it could go on till the end of sand. <laughs> However, this doesn't happen. Because in Weishaupt's study, what happens is what he calls the forces of grummet. Well, they grummet, they grummet, nibble in. They're sort of strange people. Eristic forces. Yeah? The eristic forces uh, start gnawing in. Who are these? Well, they're sort of clown-like people, weird people, things like that. 
people talking gobbledygook. I don't know, all sorts of things. Anyway, they're the forces of grummet, evidently, who send the whole Beampton share shaft in crashing and crumbling down and then begins, out of the rubble, the new Feverung period. I don't know, I'm sort of um, getting into key with the grummet people now. In um, Compendium Now, you can buy this book, Eco Defence, A Field Guide to Monkey Wrenching, second edition. Now, this tells you, this is if you are on behalf of wilderness, right? And as the um, things encroach on wilderness, which is you, right, you must fight it. And it gives you all chapter and verse on where to go for, for how to uh, get rid of earth-moving equipment and uh, all, all this sort of stuff. And how to stop trees being chopped down and a whole lot. Anyway, this is something like a, a force of grummet. And uh, I tell you what, in the load of hay, we were feeling our way into Grummet. There was, a, there was a feeling one particular night that we were going to go round the corner into um, England's Lane to the George Washington Pub. And we were going to change its name to the Adam Weiss House <laughs> that night. Well, we didn't do that. And uh, there was a knock on the door a bit too early. And uh, I answered it to uh, an overweight... Uh, American in sandals and he gave the name of someone I knew I said yeah yeah come in he came in it, it turned out he was um, he'd been a, a journalist on High Times uh, dopers magazine he asked if he had rolled a joint I said yeah good I, I said I don't think this is very good is it he said, no, it isn't. <laughs> I said, well, so you, you won't be giving it a good review then? <laughs> uh, anyway, can't do that. Anyway, that's the last thing I needed was to be doing that early in the morning. I got all this uh, typing to be doing. Anyway, I was trying to sort of show by my body language that actually probably about the time he buggered off. <laughs> he was just going. And he said, um, but I understand you're interested in conspiracy. I said, well, yeah, a bit, yeah, I said, um, <laughs> I, you know, I've got this, um, you know, little idea that I might uh, put on a, a show based on Shane Wilson's uh, Illuminatus books. I said, that's, I said, why? He said, I thought you might be interested in this. And he gave me uh, a bunch of typewritten pages. Opens like this. It's called... The skeleton key to the gemstone file. It is dangerous to transmit or even to possess this information. There is no copyright on this material. Anyone who wishes to may reproduce it. Credit will go where credit is due after the mess has been cleaned up. Anyway, I looked uh, quickly into it. It's full of um, quite uh, rabid accusations around the world. I said, what, 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 what do you want me to do with this? He said, I want you to have it. He said, I don't want to have it anymore. He said, do whatever you like with it. And he left. Now, yeah, um, well, uh, it, there are a lot of deaths in this. Uh, for example, it uh, tells you exactly who had to die and why before Kennedy was 
assassinated. Otherwise they might talk. Someone died by eating poisoned apple pie. Yeah, but Marshall. Anyone remember his name? He was a guy who was the designated custodian for John F. Kennedy's brains, <laughs> which he lost. <laughs> uh, I don't go, I don't scared to read some of stuff out of it. I do Sodium morphate has been a favourite mafia poison for centuries. It smells like apple pie, so it's frequently served up in one. <laughs> Sometimes it's given in a pill or capsule. Symptoms, lethargy, sleep, sometimes vomiting. Once ingested, there is a heart attack and no trace is left in the body. Proof is in the vomit, which is not usually analysed, not mentioned in standard medical books on poisons. Now, a common ingredient in rat poison. Uh, at that time, 19, early 76, there weren't so many places you could get things photocopied at, but there was one at the Swiss Cottage Library. I thought, really ought to go and get this photocopied. So I left my place, but when I got onto Harrisot Hill, do you know, I now noticed how tall the buildings opposite were, and as I went out there, the curtains sharply pulled you know, my God, <laughs> And, uh, you know, the guy, I thought, I thought, God, who was that guy in sandals, actually? And uh, I went to have some breakfast, but then I thought, no, I'd best not eat anything, actually. <laughs> anything. What I'd better do is, no, best not to use the telephone. <laughs> I allowed myself some tap water, and I was almost paralysed there, with paranoia or fear. I couldn't quite get it together to leave, and I couldn't quite phone, and I couldn't eat, and I just couldn't think what to do. And then I remembered the science fiction convention and that other great guy I met, Martin Walker. Martin Walker, the, um, he was then um, a journalist on The Guardian. He's still with The Guardian. He was the great man during Glasnost and everything like that. He was uh, the great man from Russia writing in Martin Walker. Anyway, a humble journalist then. A great science fiction fan. I rang up The Guardian. I allowed myself one call. I rang The Guardian. I got hold of Martin on the phone. I said, Martin, I said, um, I've, got, I've, I've got something here which I think is extremely important and I think you ought to come round right away. He, he said, I can't come round right away. He said, but what is it? I said, listen, man, I said, if it's, as, it's what I think it might be, I said, I can't talk about it on the telephone. He said, well, give me a clue. I said, gemstone. He said, I'll be round right away. <laughs> anyway. He came, God, it was so comforting to have him there. He, uh, he took the uh, bundle of pages and he took out his silver propelling pencil and he made little marks like tips and crosses and things like that. And then he stopped writing at all. He finished it and he said, This is splendid. I said, We can't put it in the garden. He said, I'm not sure about it all. He said, I don't think. Oh, Nassis had that sort of money then to do all those things. Well, I can't check it up. He said, well, what we'll do, he said, is we'll salvage that with it. He said, salvage that, that's how they publish things in Russia, you see. He said, what we'll do, 
is, uh, he, he'd go back to the uh, Guardian offices, he'd get, get 20 copies, photocopy, come back with them, and then we'd send the map anonymously to the right people, to the key people, who'd know what to do with them, that you had to copy them out again 10 times and send them on. Wow. Anyway, we got all that done. We went to the pillar box. Whoosh, I don't know, a swish of them going in. I felt I had a tail. Mm. Martin was uh, to become a great friend of ours. We'd applied. The science fiction theatre in Liverpool had applied to the Arts Council for a, a grant. Where it says, you know, what, what, what is it you're planning doing? He said, we plan mounting the most remarkable play yet done on the planet. And I'm not sure, sure that would go, go down with him. Anyway, Martin said to us, Martin said, he said, why don't you, uh, why don't you announce that I've joined the board of the Science Fiction Theatre of Liverpool? Why is it Martin there isn't a board? He said, yeah, but they don't know that. I said, oh, yeah, okay, well, okay maybe, yeah. And then I said, well, listen, Martin, I'm not, I'm not sure that uh, the sort of people who are on the, the Arts Council drama panel have necessarily heard of you. He said, uh, well, he said, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll write you a CV then, shall I? Yeah, anyway, so there was a, he was at the typewriter. It's wonderful, you're a great pro. At the typewriter, boom, boom, boom. He said, he turned to us, he said, he said, I, um, I shall include one lie, he said, because science fiction should never take itself seriously. Yeah, like that. Martin Walker, correcting V time. Educated, Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Harvard. <laughs> uh, speech writer for Senator Muskie on the campaign trail at some time or another. Uh, master of aerobatics. Member of the, uh, the Red Devil's parachuting <coughs> outfit. Uh, Co-author of that movie Point Blank with Lee Marvin, uh, of course, journalist of The Guardian and an author of uh, a book on the National Front. But the last entry was Enormous Cock. Anyway, so I, um, I just mailed it up like it was. Dear Arts Council, I think you'd be interested to know that Martin Walker has joined the board of the Science Fiction Theatre of Liverpool. Like that. He wrote us a splendid piece as well about um, how uh, uh, science fiction was the pioneering uh, genre of writing. It's a very really splendid piece. Anyway, uh, the Arts Council meeting, apparently, um, people were going back saying, uh, it's like, um, uh, have you heard that uh, Martin Walker has joined the board of the Science Fiction Theatre of Liverpool? So no, here's his CV here. Yeah, right, and they're going to turn someone else on to this, you see. Anyway, I guess the meeting was quite long, you know. Then they got to the Science Fiction Theatre of Liverpool. And upstate Jean Bullwinkle. She's um, was, uh, an older, long-serving officer of the Arts Council. Very nice, rather prim lady. And she said, I don't know why Martin Walker has to lie. <laughs> 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 he was not co-author of Point Black. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we, uh, we anyway, see, because we got the money. 
The thing was, going back to the force, there's a pick up, there's something I missed out here. The forces of grummet, the heuristic forces, you see, the goodies of the Illuminatus are the heuristic forces, the followers of the goddess Eris. I don't know if uh, you know about her, you maybe not thought about the goddess Eris. It seems I wasn't actually, but um, she was. Eris, the goddess of chaos. Yeah, and uh, there was this key meeting apparently when all the um, great gods uh, and goddesses, the sensible ones, Zeus and whatnot, all got together and had a sensible meeting. So they didn't invite Eris, the goddess of chaos, keep her out of it. And they had a sensible meeting, but secretly Eris made this golden apple, a most beautiful golden apple, and she wrote on it Callisti, which as I understand it means for the most handsome one, for the best looking, and she locked it into the meeting. <laughs> and they all started scrapping over it and the messages. Uh, you can't not invite Arius. The forces of chaos are always there. And the, um, the uh, people of the Eristic Church regard that as the original snub. <laughs> the, uh, I have here the hymnal. Have you had a hymnal of the Church of Eris? Uh, I'll treat you, if you like, to a, a Discordian hymn. Onward, Christian soldiers. Onward, Buddhist priests. <laughs> Onward, fruits of Islam. Fight till you're deceased. Fight your little battles. Join, its, join in thickest fray for the greater glory of Discord IA. Yeah, 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 yeah. Elsie, an Erisian hymn. Anyway, things are now moving apace. We're given as uh, we're given November the twenty-third as the time when uh, people should assemble themselves if they wanted uh, inclusion in this piece. Anyone who came is going to be cast discordantly. If you just arrived on November the twenty-third, you could be there. There was now a run-up. Chris Langham had gone away, and I was now working with. Uh, a wild fellow called Bill Nye, spelt Niffy, N-I-G-H-Y. And Bill and I were, were sorting out weird and wonderful ways to spend the Arts Council grant. I rather felt you didn't want to have too much money, because if you're going to have enthusiasm, uh, you really didn't want to pay people. That was, my, that was a strange feeling that I had. Anyway, I used to say to him, I said, Bill, if this is going to be the uh, most remarkable play yet done on uh, Planet World, Presumably Orson Welles will be interested. He'd say, yeah, I suppose he would. I said, well, get on to him, get on to him, find oh, out. He said, well, where does he live? I said, I don't know, he always lives somewhere. He attempted to give him a Maybe he couldn't get hold of him. He was on the beach, he's gone, gone away suddenly. Well, John Wayne, let's try John Wayne, Jodorowsky, all sorts of folk were going through. We nearly hit it with Andrew Folds. You know, he's a, he's a politician now, but he used to be Jet Morgan on the radio. He dickered, he nearly thought about it. Anyway, wonderfully, we got through a hell of a lot of money. By the time everyone arrived, on November the 23rd, there really was a hell of a lot of people, and we bought a whole load of wine as well, so everyone had a merry time, right? And that's when um, some of the forces, some of the 23 forces, two and three equals five, started to in, inroad in in a strange way. There was a wonderful girl there that night. We'd not seen her before. I must tell you, we used to go out, you know, casting round Liverpool. I thought it was something a Fellini-esque enterprise. Right that, I meant the way I suppose he cast, you know. So we go to a wonderful cafe. I say, Bill, see that, see that, that girl over there. I think she should be in it. Go and tell her that I'm in town. Remember that? Remember that? He'd go over there. Like She'd come over. Maybe not. Maybe not. Anyway, wild nights around there. Okay. And then and she hadn't come, but she said her friend or something like that. Anyway, we were a symbol of people. One of the people who cropped up was the most beautiful show jumping girl. Wow, she'd not heard of it before. Really, she just arrived that night. Wow, was she beautiful? And she said, boys, I think this is going to be the greatest thing ever. I uh, offer myself for anything absolutely anything to be part of this anyway uh, so uh, she went off with uh, Bill that night so that he could uh, test this out it was her car I think she was driving 
and they wrapped themselves around a tree. Yeah? You know, his leg over her head and a jumble of um, metal. And she said, I'm sorry. And he said, it's all right. That was two. That same night, uh, John Joyce was uh, to play Saul Goodman. Rode his motorbike down a hole, broke his collarbone. Be able to go into the Liverpool infirmary and, and see the mummified bandage show jumping girl and Bill Nye there. In the, uh, in the great pub, John Painton had his nose broken. That's four. Number five was the weirdest. Neil Cunningham, who was to play Hagbard Chalene, he the, uh, the owner of the uh, Yellow Submarine and leader of the Legions of Dynamic Discord, had his hand bitten by a Doberman pincher, right? Lacerating into his palm, the Roman numeral number five. <laughs> anyway, on we went, on we went uh, uh, with this wacky thing. I'm going to pass through the wonders of um, episode one. It was, it was, it's we done in five plays, you see. Our original plan was it was going to be five plays, each play of five acts, each act 23 minutes long. That's what we said. It didn't quite work out that way. But uh, I want to jump, actually, to the third play, a very weird one. As we devised it, its uh, title was The Man Who Murdered God. Um, a rather terrific actor, the one who had his nose broken in, in, the, in the pub, uh, John Payton. I'd held him back a bit. Uh, we, we let him play the, uh, the, the Ponce in play number one, the Ponce who uh, is to die eventually of anthrax leprosy mew. Uh, I don't know, the smallest part of the so again, giving him that, giving him that, but I rather held him back. He had a, um, a, a wonderful, resonant voice. You know, a bit, a, bit, a, bit, a, bit, a bit of the quality of Richard Burton about him. I had to hold him back. And he can be the man who murdered God. Actually, he'd come in on it, on it quite late. He'd never read the books, uh, He'd never read the books painting. Anyway, we get, get him now. We had one week to rehearse uh, each of these pieces. We're now, now on, the, on the third week. I tell you what, the man who murdered God, I knew what the music should be for this because when I'd been over in America to visit Shay and, and, and Wilson, when I was in New York, I'd been to see this extraordinary horror opera called Camilla. It was based on a Sheridan uh, Le Fanu story. Extraordinary, these two girls sitting on a singing sofa. The sofa was like the chorus. Christ, I, I, I raced around New York and I got, I got uh, the LP of it. And I said to Terry Canning, the uh, musical director, I said, when we get to play number three, The Man Who Murdered God, I said, it's music of this ilk is what we want. Anyway, so there we were. So, young. Then out to rehearse the man who murdered, murdered God. I said, Terry, uh, you've, you've listened to that music. Uh, he said, uh, no. <laughs> I, said, well, look, I said, well, that's no good. I said, well, look, you, you better just go off home and listen to it. Um, he said, no. He said, I can't do that. I said, I said why? He said, because I've lost it. I said, for Christ's sake. I said, well, I mean, what, you lose it before you even listen to it. God, that shot me into such a fury. Really, I could hardly concentrate on anything. And then, then I discovered John Payton didn't understand what the part was all about. He didn't understand no, 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 what it was about. He couldn't make sense of the words. I said, oh, man, it's so simple. Listen, it's like this. Robert Putney Drake uh, was a man in the 20s who came across the last words of the dying gangster Dutch Schultz. And his last words were weird. So they include stuff like this. Uh, it, it, 
It takes all events into consideration. No, no, and it is no. It is confused and it says no. A boy has never wept nor dashed a thousand kim. Please crack down on the Chinaman's friends and Hitler's commander. I am sore and I'm going up and I'm going to give you honey if I can. Mother is the best bet and don't let Satan draw you too fast. The Baron says these things. Come on, open the soap ducats. The chimney sweeps, take to the sword. French-Canadian bean soup, I want to pay. Dutch Schultz sank into, conscious, into unconsciousness then. It was 6.40 p.m. He died two hours later without saying anything else. Anyway, that's, I said, I said, I said, that's not like the last word. He comes across the, uh, the, the last words of Dutch Schultz. You know, these were, I said, and, and he realises, he realises when he reads those that there's something. Dutch Schultz is giving us something there. What he's giving us is the big key. And it's the big key to how you run the people who run the people who run the people who run organised crime. It's how you become that person. And uh, what you have to do is you have to do a deal with the Luigor. The Luigor, John, being the uh, generic term for a being, a quasi-physical uh, being, who used to be part of our planet, but uh, we're so appallingly awful that it sort of self-expelled itself from there. In Luigor, you get a, a feeling of the Luigor in Nightmare, for example. I said, actually, probably most religions are... A, are a front for the Loigor, except possibly the, the Church of Various. Anyway, uh, him realising that uh, this is what they, they walk, Loigors, you see, they walk not in the spaces we walk, but in the spaces between. Anyway, well, what, what happens is Robert Putney Drake tests out this notion. He goes, he visits Jung, actually, and, uh, and, and gets Jung's uh, feel of what these words mean, and also Hermann Hesse and some others, and so uh, then he knows. Um, and, um, and then Paynton said, well, he, he said, look, I'll, I'll just learn the lines, all right? <laughs> Fine, so he did. Wow, it was a, it was a, it was a grand performance. Um, I mean, because uh, what, what happens is, you see, it's Robert Putney Drake does one good thing. He, he uh, actually joins, just for a moment, joins forces with a legion of dynamic discord, the Arisian forces, the, the forces of Grummet, just for a moment. Wow, of course, that means he's... He's done the dirty on the Loigor, so he must suffer for it. He must be eaten from the soul outwards, right? And in the, the, in the production, it happens like that, sort of like, I don't know, like the end of um, Dr. Faustus or something. And there was Robert Putney Drake in the middle, uh, in his spotlight. And then uh, just over there was Dutch Schultz, because at the same time, it was like a three-ring circus. But we had Dutch Schultz there. We found how we could uh, machine gun down Dutch Schultz, and then have him in bed raving in two seconds. The way we did it was this, da 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 dies, right? Blackout, burst of red, and then we swing round this thing, which is like a, a bed with a mock body in it, like that, and so he just had to put his shirt down and stick his head over, right? Be the dying Dutch Schultz, but to, so it's not like a 45 degree angle, and to be honourable to that, we stuck Sergeant Conlon, that braced on, braced on metal there, taking down the notes, right? He's taking down the notes, so you're treated to, uh, that's Schultz's last words. While we hear Robert Putney Drake's strange words as he recounts how he's eaten from the soul. That was mean little while. On the right, uh, we had the tarot spread. I'm really not an enthusiast of tarot cards at all, but a great, um, great import is put on this particular tarot spread. So I said, well, Christ, if it's important then, 
We should see it like you would in a film, you know, in a film you would have a shot, wouldn't you, overhead so you could uh, read your tarot spread. So we stuck uh, this set at a 90 degree angle, right? So there's the table with a tarot spread so you can read it, right? And the tarot reader is looking like she's sitting on a chair like this. And she's breaks up there, lying on her back, looking up at the tarot spread. And the, the guy, when he comes in for the reading, has to be over there with a pair of dummy legs looking over at the top like that. And he's really wacky. But I didn't tell you, did I, about um, Camilla. Camilla Saunders. Actually, what, what had happened was, because we had this strange music as well, when uh, uh, Terry Canning had uh, lost the record, and I was fuming all day. Then I was in the grapes, still fuming. And this little lady came up to me and she said, uh, do you need any musicians? I said, I don't know. I said, do you lose things? <laughs> she said, no. I said, well, maybe. I said, Terry, I think I just found the sort of musician I need. She doesn't lose things. Uh, I, I, and, and I explained to her about, um, you know, the sort of music, I said, I said that, that's what she was into. She was into sound composing. I said, what? I said, so where do you come from? She said, Transylvania. <laughs> Apparently she'd heard, way back then, in 76, you know, about how and they, they were hiding off all the peasants, you know, to work in factories and whatnot, and the folk singing was getting lost, and she'd been over there recording it. And I'd said, what's your name? And she said, Camilla. Anyway, so... You can imagine that the end of this was really quite sumptuous. The man who murdered God, he heard strange unhinging music and him being eaten from the soul outwards and then the end of it. Anyway, the whole thing was great. Uh, that, 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 as an entirety, what happened was uh, we put it on um, on five Sundays in Liverpool in the Liverpool School of Language, Music, Dream and Pun in its entirety. It's a start at 10 o'clock in the morning and go on to about 10 o'clock at night. I'd sort of done it like a day in a science fiction convention, you see, so that you know, what happens when you get mind-boggling information and then off to Ken in his wine bar, see? And uh, we've got special dispensation from a magistrate. We've been to the magistrate and he said, well, yes, you can serve all day because there'll be, there'll be visitors, but you've got to know how, how, you know, how we can tell those visitors. We said, well, they can all wear Legion of Dynamic Discord badges. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's fine. So that's it was, but this, I mean, where we were actually presenting this piece wasn't actually even licensed to sell a cup of tea. Oh, and a wonderful Discordian seating we had with uh, deck chairs, church pews, park benches, bar stools, etc. Brian Aldis came, he reviewed it for The Guardian and he said, whenever was I at such a show, whenever was I in such a bar, he said. Anyway, when we were there, we did something and really, actually, see, because I'm going to talk now about um, the dismantling of a great spirit. It's really what I'm speaking from. Anyway, we um, did something, it seems to me, to be quite sensible. We heard that the third wing of the National Theatre had been finished early. Like the, uh, the Littleton and the Olivier, they were finished late. But the Cottesloe had been finished early. In fact, it was now, now ready, just that they weren't ready to put any shows on. And so um, Chris Langham and I wrote 23 letters to the National Theatre, to different people all around it. We assumed that nobody really got together in those corridors. Invited them to see us, suggesting that it went on at the Cottesloe. Barty from the National Theatre agreed to come on uh, the last show. 
Well, <clears throat> Peter O'Halligan's brother, Sean, had a flat. Had a little flat bit, uh, which was adjacent to the uh, room that we were performing this in. We said to Sean, listen, the National Theatre coming. Would it be all right to knock your wall down? So they could like have your flat as a sort of like, royal box to watch it from. I said, "Wow, what a great idea!" Anyway, so he, he knocked his uh, knocked his wall down. He said, "Should I? will clean it up." I said, "No, don't clean it up. I think it'll enchant them the way it is. You know, with fags in the fireplace and all and all that." that for many They they came. They were enchanted. They said, "Yeah." I said, "Yeah, you can open you can open the Cottesloe with this." And uh, but then we got this little gig as well uh, to go to Amsterdam first. But Amsterdam said, but you can only bring 26 people. Oh, there were quite a few more than 26 involved. This is what I mean by dismantling the spirit, because the people who went were like really the, the real enthusiasts, the real fans, the people who found this sort of thing for the first time. Do you know other people who have maybe an, an equity card or some sort of uh, little history of performing or doing something or something? No. The tea makers and the gophers, we, we axed out for the trip to Amsterdam. And then as we came in to the National Theatre, they said, yeah, but only 22. They said, oh, that's ridiculous. It's got to be 23. So we brought uh, 23 in. Anyway, the thing went on there. It was OK. to read all the books and ask people and like that. He was really clued up in what he was talking about. Now, when he gave us his Robert Putney Drake, I don't honestly think it made a lot of, lot of differences before. <laughs> it was terrific before, and it was terrific again. There you are. And then the National Theatre said, listen, we really think you're onto something with this piece. We would like to help you present it at the Roundhouse. But you'll have to cut a lot of it. I said. So the longest it could be is to say start at half past six and go on till eleven. I think that's because that's how long the Iceman coming is or something. <laughs> oh yeah, oh no. Oh yeah, oh no. Anyway, I said, yeah, okay, let's go with it. Okay, let's do it. But how are you gonna lose when now? I mean now you're gonna really take shears to the piece. Okay, but let's go, let's take shears. Actually the only way that I could find of getting rid of this uh, amount of stuff, as amongst other things, was to cut in its entirety the man who murdered God. I mean, for sure, uh, John Payton knew what it meant. I wasn't sure that anyone else had said aficionados of Lovecraft. That short's really near what's happening. I mean, it's exciting, bracing experience, I and he was still in it, you see, because he was still with Ponce de Gotham, Anthrax le Leprosy Mew, or whatever it was. He <laughs> was also um, in a strange German pop group at the end, but by and large he was a... Uh... Sorry, figure, oh, man, it was a bit of a waste of knowing all that stuff, I suppose. And that's really where the fine piece uh, died. Um, a lot of the folk who'd uh, stayed with it, or been allowed to stay with it to the end, really quite a number of them were 
stopping, noted, and went off to uh, uh, to good things. Um, but it wasn't noticeable that any uh, good things actually happened to John Painton. In fact, as the years were now beginning to roll by, you'd bump into him. He'd turn up to uh, cheer on one of the old colleagues on the, you know, their, meet out their luck to be in his place something there. But, but he would always be talking about the Illuminatus. He would always be talking in terms of um, Luigors. They were, walk not in the spaces we walk, but in the spaces between them. He, he would say, to listen with Basel or something. He'd be quoting, uh, you know, his Dutch shorts and Illuminism and everything. I, I, I remember one time he was at some first night and, uh, and people didn't want, to, didn't want to talk about all this stuff, you know, like that. And it, was sort of, it was sort of down to me he was there. I said, OK, I'll, I'll go with him, I'll be with him. I'll go, I'll, you know, we'll go across to the cafe and I'll be with him. Actually, but I was talking to him, actually, but he, he drove me. Uh, he drove me so potty that I found myself throwing my dinner in his lap. <laughs> uh, anyway, things went on. He said, more that, that now, um, in as much as I saw him, I was aware that he was... Um, Having uh, visions, I think, um, in January and February, he, would, he, he was taking a, an interest in the Dogon tribe. Uh, the Dogon tribe in Africa, a bunch of primitive seeming folk who, who knew all about Sirius long before we spotted it in 1860 or something. They'd known about it for centuries. And the reason they knew about it, they'd been told about it by uh, dog people. It's all, uh, it's all clear and all written down, all written there, it's on the jars and, and whatnot. So he was taking an interest in. You're taking interest in those. And Lindsay DePaul. Lindsay DePaul, she'd uh, received some sort of pink or white light but roughly about the same time he had. He was wondering whether he should um, contact her. I, I, I didn't think he should at all, actually. Things are now going on. Then um, there was the reading of Neil Oram's Chameleon Blue. Neil Oram wrote The Walk. This is not a big production idea. And um, serious and, and, and stuff like that, though, if that would be, that'd be all right, you know, because, I mean, it, it was only quite recently he'd been caught scaling the outside of a Masonic temple. Some said that he'd broken into the Camden Town pet stores, stolen all the minor birds, and trained them to say, right now, boys, right now, and release them. <laughs> 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 I mean, I don't, any, you know, we just want to get on with the reading. I said, yeah, fine. <laughs> Actually, he's brown actor. He was actually normally a very good sight reader, but he actually read rather well on that occasion. I said, at, the, at the end of it, I thought, I, I, don't, I, I could see he was boiling up to ask him some sort of question or other. I, thought, I don't want to be around for that. And, and I said, listen, people, I've got to have a bath. We were holding the seat at my place, so I often had a bath. And from the bath, I could overhear him asking Neil Arm. And Neil Arm knows, uh, you know, round about everything about everything. He's asking Neil Arm about unicorns. A couple of days later, there was a phone call, and I knew it was Painton, and I'll tell you why, because 
You always knew if it was him because of the pit, pit, pit. It was like he, he had misshapen money always. He could have time to go through. Uh, I said, hello there. Uh, he, said, he said, hello. I said, what are you up to now? He said, uh, I, I've just done in an old lady. I said, uh, I, I said, look, I said, listen, look, this is, uh, you know, your style of antique now. Uh, I don't want you coming around here anymore. <laughs> he said, all right, no, uh, so not to come around anymore. I said, no, no, I said, you can't. I said, I said, listen, I said, you're a fucking idiot, actually. I said, you know what you've done? I said, what you've done is you've swallowed the whole of this nonsense hook, line and sinker. I said, everybody else took it with a degree of humour. They saw it as fun. You, you arsehole, you've swallowed it all. Hook, line, and sinker. I said, you may have walked it dead in itself. That's why nobody wants you around, you but I said, I'll tell you what. Get all your ideas, your pink light, and your dogon tribes. I said, get all your ideas, work them into a comedy stick. I said, give me a phone call, tell me whether you're one of the comedy stores. I'll come and see you. And if I laugh, you can come round again, okay? <laughs> I didn't know, it's, uh, it's, uh, three days go by. And there's a really cheery voice on the phone. He said, hello, King. I, I said, hello. He said, uh, I'm reading about your friend, John. I, I said, uh, what, John Joyce? No. Oh, that John uh, Painton? He said, yeah, he said, he's in a bit of trouble, your friend. I said, who is that? He said, Hendon Police. Uh, he said, I understand he rang you the other day. Uh, I said, yeah, he did. He said, what did he say? Uh, I, I said, he said he'd uh, j just uh, done this old lady. In. He said, what did you say? Uh, I, 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 I said, not to come round anymore. <laughs> he did, uh, and he said, did you say anything else? <laughs> Uh, I, I, said, I, I said, yes, I said, uh, no, if he could um, uh, see the funny side of everything and uh, get it all together as a, a comedy skit. <laughs> <laughs> and see him. Yeah, he said, do you know anything about the illuminations, Ken? <laughs> I said, yes, I said, I think I, I know what you're, what you're talking about. He said, Lucas, I think he makes sense, your friend. It's just we haven't got the code. He said, if you could come round, he said, in the next two, three weeks, he said. He said, and uh, tell us about the illuminations. It could be helpful for your friend. So I agreed to go. Um, I decided to do it properly. I took all my slides. I took everything, actually. Uh, when uh, it was down in the basement of Hendon Police Station, it started off, they were just, uh, oh, this guy, the guy, the cheery guy, he was so fat and big, a fellow named Holly, he was as cheery as he sounded. Oh, Caden, and then he sat down, there was just him and another couple to begin with, but by the end, because I really told them everything about uh, Mark's being duped and the whole thing from, from Vera on right the way through, I told them about the last words of Dutch Shorts, I told them, I let them know the whole thing. At the end, there were... I don't know, there were about 30 coppers there. They gave me a huge round of applause. Oh, you know, oh, he said, he was always mopping his head. Uh, I said, oh, well, he said, oh, yeah, it's been very helpful, Ken, he said. Well, we, uh, we've got the code now. And, uh, I, I said, what actually happened? He said, why? He said, I mean, he said, yeah. Well, what had happened was he'd had instructions uh, from the dog person. 
And uh, the instruction was this. There was um, a similar to a shopping bag lady. Actually, she'd got a little place she lived, but she'd got uh, rather a lot of cats. And the instruction was uh, to kill her. So uh, he'd done his best on that. And then, however, it had occurred to him that there would be a recording of what he'd done on her eyes. It would be there just to be looked at. <coughs> and so he tried to take her eyes out with the leg of a chair. Yeah. I'll cut you now to uh, number one court of the old Bailey. Now, um, it's really an open and shut case. I hadn't seen uh, Payton in intervening time. He was in between a couple of plainclothes coppers, I suppose. Very young, dignified. Uh, it was a sort of a judge and uh, folk uh, looking through photographs. And then uh, the judge looked up. He said, uh, I can't he said something like, uh, well, you're, you're completely potty, he said. So you'll have to go to a place for the potty. He said, uh, whether you'll be let out again or not, he said, I don't know, it will be up to the judgment of specialists in the field. Painting, the dignity, looked him straight in the eye and said, thank you. He's marched away. Uh, I'd gone there with uh, John Joyce and we powered up with some uh, other friend of Paintons and we were now across the road from the Old Bailey in the Quillam Pen. We were down in quite a few points. And in came the fat man from Hendon. Hello, Kane, he said. He said, how do you think we did? I said, welcome. I said, I, I don't know. I mean, if he's, you know, going to be doing, uh, you know, uh, things like, like this, uh, uh, you know, I don't see what, what else um, should have happened to him. No, he said, no. He said, do you think it was the illuminations that done it? I thought, oh, wow, what's this guy? What's he saying beyond that? Is he saying, really, it's you that should have been... What are you doing, you know, with all the illuminations, spreading this, uh, you know, fear? What are you doing, you know? Someone goes, I think what sort of after sales hair did you hear? I'm sure you I said, yes. He said, I do. He said, but as we wander through this veil of tears, come sometimes surprises. <laughs> he said none of this could come out in court because he meant to kill her. But uh, she has now revived against uh, all medical opinion. Yeah, she can see well through the left eye. She could see through the right eye if she had the muscular ability to lift the lid. He said, and this whole thing has alerted the uh, authorities to her circumstance. She's been removed from her hovel. She now lives in a nice place with nice people and a tale to tell. Well, that's a good thing. Well, uh, 
for months, I suppose, went by, maybe a bit longer, I found myself, uh, I was playing the alchemist at the Nottingham Playhouse, which is production. And it was the last night. And uh, I delivered my first speech. And suddenly to the left of me, I saw the dinner, the dinner that I'd thrown in Paynton's lap. I saw it there. And then it changed, and out of the dinner came an angel. I don't know if you know this about um, acting, but it's supposedly a calling. So I guess if you're going to be called to do it, you can also be taken off. And that's what the angel had come to do, was to inform me that I was now off the list. I, I, I mean, I, I said, I said, this is a hell of a time to come. I said, listen, well, I mean, how about, um, if I, ne I promise never to act again, but I mean, might as well lead me on till the end of tonight. I said, no, I'm you're off now. I said, so what am I supposed to do? He said, well, you do what you like. I do now. <laughs> what you don't realise, you see, till you're taken off the list, is actually what acting consists of. Theatre acting, this is. It's a hell of a lot of time. You're in a trance. You're in a sort of trance condition. You don't realise it. So you take off the list. When you take off the list, it's like this, you see. You can see the floor. You can see um, how the setting is constructed. Cunningly, it's canvas and whatnot. How that isn't made of metal at all. It's uh, some painted wood. And you can see the audience out there. And you know what you're meant to be doing. You're meant to be portraying um, Ben Johnson's alchemist. You've finished your speech in a moment. A colleague, a rather tubby colleague, actually, is going to come in through that door there, quaintly painted. He's going to talk incomprehensible period gibberish for quite some time. Yeah. And, but when he finishes, it's going to be your job to reply in light mode. And can you think what it is that you're meant to say? <laughs> no. Do you think you might when we get there? I don't know. <laughs> and so it goes and he finishes. He finds, oh, I know where we are. I can remember he's on that page there. I'm sort of reading this page in my mind. God, that's when you know how long a minute is, and then you know how long five minutes is. Oh, an hour. Anyway, I, uh, I limped through to the... Oh, during it, I tried to actually contact the Almighty himself. I was on it, see if he could, uh, you know, just... Uh, yeah, he was doing something else, I had to do it all on my own. Yeah. And after that, I never actually acted in a, a play, really. Get a play. Uh, a little while later, the angel came back again and said, uh, uh, small parts in uh, films and TV's all right. It was all right. I got on with the writing and the directing. Um, um, things were fine. <coughs> Worry is this. In this Easter just past, the science fiction convention uh, was held in Liverpool and I was summoned down there to be uh, their guest of honour. Uh, and I stayed outside for the opening ceremony and I actually heard my name mentioned in the cry of, he's in the bar. <laughs> Thank you very much for your attention.
Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast, was produced and presented by Daisy Campbell and David Bramwell, with kind permission from the Ken Campbell Estate. Music was by Horton Jupiter. It was funded by Arts Council England. The disembodied voice of Ken was Jeremy Stockwell.